Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. Today I'll be joined by Famara Jeju to speak about food sovereignty in Senegal, as well as different agroecological methods in farming. If you enjoy this content, please do go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also get on our mailing list so that you're informed every time a new episode is released. And also go to our YouTube channel, The Analysis-News. Like all the videos you want to watch, hit the subscribe button and hit the bell. That way you're notified every time a new episode is published. See you in a bit with Samara. Joining me now is Famara Jeju. He is the program officer for West Africa at the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. And he is the producer of a recent documentary feature film called The Last Seed, which was also produced by the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation together with the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. So thank you so much for joining me, Famara. Thank you, Talia. Oi. You've had so much experience working in rural planning, in small-scale farming in Senegal. I know you've had over 12 years experience working in these projects. So I was wondering what your own personal view is on how important food sovereignty is in African countries, particularly given the context of European colonialism, which has plundered Africa's resources for so many centuries on end. A strong, great question. And very large question as well. You know, the the issue of food, one side of it is what is said on the media by policymakers and so on. And the other side of it, which is for me more relevant, is what communities or people, citizens are living day to day. And I will take it from not only my childhood, but where I'm coming from, for instance, my village. And uh, the same can apply to many other communities in uh, Africa, not only in uh, Senegal. So there was a time where I would say at least 75% of what you eat, you were able to produce it by your own. If you were not able to produce it by your own, it was very nearby that you can have access to it. And those type of products, there was a, a way to cook to cook it. There was a way, if I can even say, to eat them, depending on your, if I can call it, diet. Not everything you are going to eat at any time. There are things you will eat at a certain part of the day. There are things you will eat at a certain part of the year, and so on and so on. But more and more, we are we we are we are about to have a standardized way of eating, which is completely disconnecting us from our, if I can call it, our reference of how food, how agriculture, how a community should be. Now, this issue, uh, of course, is happening in most of the places. If for, most of the places I know. Just a small example inside. Up to the early years of 2000s, there are places, if you go there, you won't see them, you won't see packages. So if I say packages, the packaging 
of food, meaning bags, big bags, or the how the boxes and so on that was coming to to yes to package the food people were eating. People were just eating what they produce around them. Now, if you go to those places, all their uh, dash where they throw uh, wrong material, what is not good, is full of plastic, is full of empty packaging. This is this is the real proof, evidence of what people are eating is no more coming from the old community. So the issue of food sovereignty is is crucial. It's real. It's uh, threatening our communities. And mm-hmm. where it's harmful is that uh, more and more, you can easily hear some population saying, no, 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 you don't need to cultivate now. You can just go and buy, the, buy it in the, in the shop. It means I'm not going to work for my food. I will work for income. Then okay. my food, where is it coming from? How is it produced? And so on and so on. I don't care. So this is uh, for us solving this way or this new trend of relationship with food is solving that is what we call the uh, uh, regaining our food sovereignty. I don't know whether whether you get what I mean on that. We are yes. more and more losing control over our food. The soil, the seed, the work we have to do ourselves and what we should eat. All of this is slowly, slowly, slowly and slowly disappearing. And we need to regain it. By regaining it, it means we are recovering our food sovereignty. Well, based on what you've said, we can assume that because of industrialization, people are more separated or alienated from the land. They're alienated from the food that they're consuming, from the seeds even. So I wonder, you know, these other approaches like agroecological approaches, which your organization would support, they're more focused on smaller scale farming. But is this small scale farming enough to actually meet the food needs of people, like the demand, can it be scaled up or is it something that has to be kept at such a small level? Yeah. You know, um, in Africa, we are minimum, minimum 50% of the population depends on agriculture. If I say agriculture, it's not only farming crops, it's both pastoralism fish of folks and crops products, crop production. So minimum of 50% of the population is related on that. And in that population, um, most of them are small-scale producers. Statistics has shown that more than 70% around that of the food that is consumed or produced in Africa is produced by those people small-scale fisheries, pastoralism, and small-scale farmers. What does it mean? It means that there is a potential there. Unfortunately, most of our policies doesn't support that, doesn't recognize that strength. 
the eraser goes for the, the kind of narrative that's saying that we need to scale it. It doesn't mean also, on the other hand, that in agro, with agroecological practices, you can't scale up the, the level of production. There are a lot of examples, including in export product, where big companies was able, were able to follow up, to follow the requirement of agroecological production and they met it. What is needed is first to recognize that the major party, party of African producers or African uh, farmers or, I don't know, those working on the primary sector, most of them are small, small scales. Mm. And that's where we need to add value, to support. If we support them, then it can uh, took the level of production at another level. Small-scale uh, production doesn't mean at all that the level of production is small. Just two examples. Those who, are, who want to sell cotton, for instance, or peanuts for export, most of them rely on small-scale producers. Hence, they are able to produce enough until exported. In a country like Senegal, Mali, and so on, rice and millet are part of the most consumed cereals. And most of those products are produced by small-scale producers or small-scale farmers. There is a potential there. We just don't need to give it a negative connotation when we are talking about small-scale farmers. I was Impressed, not impressed, I was strongly surprised when in a meeting in Germany, I will name the, the country, we, talk, we were talking with some organic farmers and one of them was saying, I'm a small-scale producer with 250 hectares. I could not believe. I say, what? When, I, when he realized that I was surprised, he said, no, 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 me, I'm small. This guy has over 400 and they call themselves small-scale farmers. So in Africa, it's not the case. Not the case. In a country like Senegal, the average for a small-scale farmer is around 2 hectares, 3 hectares, the average. And there is a potential. They can feed the world. What you should ask is whether those big companies, those agrochemicals, those agro-industry, for years, for decades, they were saying we need to feed the world, we need to come with full security approach. Hence, up to date, the level, the number of those who are angry is getting more and more, higher and higher. So it means what they wanted to give us as a solution is indeed a false solution. And what has been the role of agrochemical companies and pesticide companies in African countries such as Senegal? I think you're the film, The Last Seed, focuses on this and shows you know, this nefarious presence of these companies. But what are they actually doing and how are they mm, affecting the actual maybe genetic composition of these seeds? Yeah. Uh, in the, if you talk about genetic uh, composition of the seeds, this will call upon the issue of GMO. In Senegal... I don't have facts, evidence, and so on saying that GMOs are around. I just heard something about that. 
But what is sure is that uh, agrochemicals companies, seed agro dealers, are very present on the continent. If you go to the northern part of the con of the country, Senegal, where there is rice production with irrigation from the Senegal River, there is a big quantity of tomato production alongside the Senegal River with irrigation. Most of the seeds they are using, if not all 100% of the seeds they are using are coming from the agro-dealers. Very few persons, very few farmers are in touch with the Senegalese Association of, far, of Peasant Seed Producers, but it's a very small inside the, the seed. So what I mean by that, all the farmers using those seeds are 100% dependent on agro-inputs, are 100% dependent, if I say agro-input is both fertilizer and pesticides, including the seeds they are using every year. What is more dangerous on that is that uh, we, are, we don't have enough choice when it comes to rice eating. More or less, there are two or three varieties turning around what we call Nerika. Nerika stands for New Rice for Africa. Just that. Where is it coming from? It's a breeding between Africa rice, African rice, Oriza glabrima, and Asian rice, Oriza sativa. Seeing mm -hmm. that African rice is uh, used to fall very quickly and that uh, sativa, something like that, and they mix it up. But the fact that the African rice is very tolerant to a lot of disease and uh, I don't know whatever was completely ignored. The fact that we had various types of rice, including red rice, the black rice, the brown rice, black and white rice, and so on, was completely ignored. The fact that the diversity of rice enabled us to be able to to, to grow the rice in the various areas. Not all the rice needs a big quantity of water. There are rice that can sustain where there is not enough water. So all that diversity, which was linked in some of our cultural way of doing things, I'm, I'm very serious on that, is slowly disappearing. If in the northern part it's uh, industrial agriculture, in the southern part and in the middle of the country, it's not industrial agriculture, but it's family farming. It's for feeding the family first before we go to the market. And in those parts also, Nerika is getting slowly, slowly in. And it's dangerous. One last example I'm going to give. In uh, 27, I get in the village and say, okay, we are working on this farmer's innovation, and uh, but please keep your seeds. Because of this, 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 this. One of them, a very wise man, you don't understand what this boy is saying. But what he's saying is very important. Before 2017, 27. In 2020, during the COVID time, the same village, they called me and say, Tamara, 
we don't have seeds. I say, what? which kind of seed? Rice. I say, I believe your community is culturally linked to seed, to, 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 to rice, to rice. It's not normal you don't have seeds. They said, it's now we realize what you were saying in 27. I say, the only seeds I have, I was in a program when we were reproducing traditional varieties. The only seeds I have are traditional varieties. If you are happy, I can link it to you. They say, those are the one we want because the new varieties, Nerica, we are lost on it. This is a fact. And they are trying to rebuild their seed system. So the agro-dealers are... are uh... Okay, I'm sorry to say that, but slowly, in some parts, they are winning their game. They are achieving their goal. So if I can, sorry, if I can interrupt you, is the issue that some of these seeds that they're, because they're hybrid or, or they've been changed in some way, that they're not able to reproduce another batch of seeds past, say, one harvest. And that's why farmers are then forced to perhaps buy more seeds and they can't rely on getting seeds from the yeah. harvest that they've been sowing. Okay. Definitely, we need to recognize one thing. When they do, they, are, they come with their hybrid seeds. It's true, their target, the criteria of those seeds is productivity. Mm. And yes, we need to recognize it. It is highly productive. But not for forever. During the first two or three years, with all the requirements, you put the, this type of uh, fertilizer, you need to do this pesticide at a certain time, yes. But if you collect the seeds, and replant it after two, three seasons, the, the, the yield will decrease drastically. And what is worst is most of the farmers are saying, our land, we cannot do anything with our land now. The land is dead. We need to recover it. So this is what is, uh, in, if, if it's, if it's only production that was, uh, linking the farmers to the agro-dealers, this is where the, the issue is. But there are some other social aspects behind. Standardization, you can only have one type of rice. The variation is very small, either it's a long grain or short grain, but the test generally is only one. It doesn't mean their cultural value, their traditional diets and so on. And how are these small-scale um, farming methods that you're speaking about? I mean, you said that just because they're on a small scale doesn't mean that they're small. They can encompass large swaths of land and they can be sustainable. But how can they work toward or, or help implement um, strategies to prevent climate change? So climate adaptation strategies. Yeah. You know, if you look at how we call it again, the kind of theory of change for the transition to agroecology. It's right behind that. you, actually. It's on the picture behind you, the theory of change. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> it, maybe this one is for AFSA, but uh, in general, the one we worked with, FAO and any other stakeholders, when we came, when we come to the, the farming system, we say the, the change in terms of agroecology practice and so on, 
we'll start at the farm level. After the farm level, we have a community level. Before the community level, we talk about the landscape, where all the farmers in a village or in a community, they say this area is where we are going to farm the rice, to grow the rice. There, they have the approaches that will fight against water when the water is depleting the soil. They have techniques to fight against that. When they say how to do so that uh, there will there won't be fire coming in that, that that place, there should be techniques about that. Then it goes to the municipality. The municipality will come together with with several landscape and develop a strategy on that. This is just in terms of uh, climate hazard. If I can say the 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 force of the white the wind or the force of the 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 water and so on. Now, when it comes to what to grow in order to face climate change, usually people will talk about variety, short, short. How do you call it again? Short term. So the one that uh, that's ripe very quickly, and another one that needs. Okay, there is a type of maize, for instance. Within forty-five days, you can harvest it. Okay. And there are other that will need two months, three months, and so on. So the farmers, for what I know, when they go for diverse in one single family, you will find if they are growing rice, they can go until five different varieties. What is the rationale behind that? First, and usually they don't have just a single plot. If a farmer tell you that I have, let's say, five hectares, it doesn't mean that you will go on one place and see the five hectares. No. One will be here, two here, three over there, and so on, until it got five. So the fact that they diverse places is so that when something happened here, what you call it in English, I won't put all my eggs in one bucket, in one yeah. basket. That's how they do it. This is in terms of space. Now, in terms of varieties, they have varieties that can be uh, salt tolerant. They can have varieties that can be flood tolerant. They can have varieties that need a very small quantity of water, and so on and so on. So when they are, this is their strategy to fight any type of hazard. So at least... Whatever will happen, there will be a place where they will harvest to the minimum. These are the, the strategy. Now, let's say uh, that in case there is no hazard, everywhere it works. Yes, they have workforces at home. All the crop won't mature at the same time. So they will take their force where it sees mature the first and slowly they will cover all the spaces without losing everywhere. But if they had only one type of one variety, it will ripe at once. Before mm. they finish to harvest just one third of all what they have cultivated, the rest will be destroyed either by the wind, either by the birds or whatever else, or it will fall. So they have strategy. We just need to recognize it 
and scale it somewhere. What are the policy demands that you think are just essential in order to effectuate this sort of small-scale farming and to have food sovereignty? Yeah, one of our policy demands, including here in Senegal, we say there is a saying for those who want to change the land, land policy. They say land, land for those who can exploit it. We will say land for those who want to exploit land. If you want, you should have access. They should not say, if you can. Because for them, can, I can, means I have big tractor, I have a lot of money, I can build, I don't know, a bridge or a dam and so on. This doesn't apply for us. Whoever wants should have access to the land and full rights. Then we come to agroecology practices. When we say agroecology practices, we there are a lot of cases where the land is completely depleted and there are public programs that are trying to reach to to recover to recover the land health. The method they are using to recover the land they are not agrochemical. They use agroecological practices. They never go to use chemical fertilizer or I don't know whatever to come. They use agroecological practices to recover the land that are depleted. So instead of depleting the land because of a type of farming method, yes, just to use the agroecology method. You don't have to, re to recover, but you will maintain or improve the soil as you go. And we have a program we call Healthy Soil, Healthy Food in the Afsar. Well, this policy demand which you speak about, how everyone who wants access to the land should have access to the land, reminds me of a different conception of rights. So a socioeconomic prioritization of rights as opposed to other rights frameworks, which, for example, prioritize um, political voting, like access to, to voting, to elections, to those sorts of political rights, to, to property and that sort of thing. But what you're talking about seems to shift the framework to other forms of economic rights, which are just as important as, you know, owning property or being able to participate in an election. So do you think a whole sort of new system of rights and maybe a new economic framework is necessary to, to see this agroecological perspective and mechanisms manifest or is it possible under the current capitalist neoliberal framework no not at all i think there is there is a need for a shift you know we've been living or experiencing uh, capitalism or one economic vision for, I would say, almost for a, for a century. And when the concept of agroecology comes on board, it's not because of farming practice. Agroecology came as one, of course, practices to be changed, not productivity, 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 without knowing what we are mm -hmm. getting. But also, 
as policy. It's a social movement. It's a politic. And another that politic is against the capitalism. <laughs> and when we say capitalism, for instance, if you want to farm to do a project on to do your farming system, a farming project, if you go to a bank to have, I don't know how you call it again, for them to lend you some money, to have a credit, the business model that you have to fill in so that they can believe or rely on your project is not done for agroecology. It's done in the capitalism way of thinking. So at least this one needs to be changed. What type of finance, what type of investment, what type of vision for agroecology approach? We've done some research. We are not yet done. But at least what has appeared in a lot of countries, including at continental level, is that the finance structure within the bank doesn't match with agroecological practices or agroecological mm -hmm. vision. What should be the next? What should be the solution? Yes, we are still looking. In Burkina Faso, I've learned of experience which could be very fine, but we need to dig more and see if it's the best. Then we scale it up for everywhere, for the world to come and learn from Burkina Faso. I have one last question for you, and that relates to the impact of the war in Ukraine on African countries and on food sovereignty in a country like Senegal. How do you think a country like Senegal should insulate or protect itself from supply chain issues, from inflation, or from other global crises? Yeah, uh, this question, maybe those who know me will also laugh at where they are looking at us. I, I spent time to believe that the world in Ukraine has impacted us in, uh, in Senegal. I, I was saying this is, was just, okay, till now, even when I'm talking about it, I'm not 100% convinced that this has really impacted. This, this was the real uh, cause of what we are suffering here in Senegal. The very first one, they said that there is no fertilizer for chemical fertilizer for our <laughs> farmers. I said, what? Here in Senegal, we have at least two, three mining industry where it's produce the, the root material to, to produce fertilizer. How can it be we depend on Ukraine, a country I don't know how many kilometers away, just one country? Thereafter, they talk about the fuel. The fuel is more or less $2 a liter. So I, I could not believe. And then after, everywhere, any single food, commodity, whoever is saying, yes, it's because of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, now I, I accept it as it is. Now, how should a country like Senegal protect itself or prevent such type of... Uh, uh, situation which is not bad, which is not uh, nice, but situation indeed. We call ourselves the Alliance for Full Sovereignty in Africa. This word of sovereignty, the concept of sovereignty, when I started to work in the early 2000s, I remember policymakers doesn't want at all the concept of sovereignty. They were talking about just security is enough. Fortunately, during the issue of Ukraine, 
we heard the first president, president of France, Macron, saying we need to recover our sovereignty. He said, oh, coming from a head of state. Few months later, our president saying we need to recover our full sovereignty. I say, what? A policymaker talking about full sovereignty and talking about local consumption, supporting our local industry, and so on and so on. So, what should be done is what we used to call for since we started to talk about food sovereignty. First, is the land to the local people first. Industrialization, we are not against industrialization, but when it's coming to about industrialization, we support local companies and food or products that are needed by the country should be the priority. We should not just produce, let me say, uh, I don't know, uh, there are some crops which are just for the external market. Or I won't say just for the external market, but I would say maybe the primary target of those crops is the external market. So we need the land to local people first. Second, any company, any industry that is going to work at local level owned by local population should have as first priority local consumption. Then we build all the infrastructure we might need. And no, 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 not then. Then, not uh, finally, then there should be a kind of push-pull strategy. For instance, the government could say, if Halia or someone wants to build or to start initiatives, which are an initiative, if it has taken into account the five principles or element of agroecology agreed at worldwide level, he will be tax exempt, tax free. Hmm. If he use nine of nine percent of them or ninety percent of them, he will be tax free up to ten percent, and so on and so on. This will create, and there should be a kind of call when the public—I don't know how you call it in English—when uh, there is a public demand, public push. A referendum? No, 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 no. When the country wants, for instance, to buy a food or rice for the school feeding program, for instance, mm -hmm. they could say our priority is for the products that are agroecologically sound. Made, then people will go over there, and they say if someone has done an innovation towards agroecology, there will be something like uh, a price, uh, a nowat for innovation in agroecology in terms of packaging, in terms of feeding, and so on. So a push pull intensifies, and so on. This needs to be done for the people to recover its food sovereignty. Otherwise. Wherever there is uh, a noad, it's usually, if you look at, if you dig behind, there is the food industry behind. And this doesn't support us. Well, you make a very interesting distinction between food security and food sovereignty, because the term 
security always begs the question, security for whom? Is it for the state? Is it for the people, for the local populations? Or is it, in fact, security for other foreign powers who are so interested in getting certain exports from a country or, or acquiring resources? So I think the way you explain sovereignty really shifts the focus to control over local resources in such a way that benefits the local populations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Local population first. Not only the food, but including the economy. I'll just give one example. I like facts. In Ghana, around 2013, 15, around that. In the middle part of Ghana, it's called the, the Middle Belt, like somewhere in the US. And in the northern part, I forgot now the name. And there, that year, the northern part, maize production was a catastrophe. It was drastic, not good at all. At the same time, the production of maize in the Middle Belt was at its top. It's a, maybe they never had this, this level of production. So, as the world is, black, white, dark, clear, and so on. So, it was easy to, to solve. You just take what is in the Middle Belt and take it to the north of yeah. the country. But there was a strong propaganda, very, very, very strong propaganda, saying that the maize in the Middle Belt is infected by aflatoxin. They can't believe. And to feed the people in the in northern Ghana saying that they are facing hunger, they went to US, bring maize from this USA, something like that, and come to feed the north of Ghana. The middle bed remained there with their with their maize. And um, I really want to do some research about aflatoxin, where aflatoxin is appearing. I have a lot of discussion with some scientists, some academics about this aflatoxin. Yes, it can be there, but I have a hypothesis on my head saying that this aflatoxin should appear in a big rate where it's the hybrid seeds for the traditional seeds or I don't know peasant seeds and so on I'm not sure aflatoxin could have this this level of how they will again occurred of of so often we've 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 grown in rural area we've been farmers for part of our life all that we are talking about the cause or the impact or the consequence of aflatoxin, we did not face it. And at that time, we were not eating all, I'm sorry, all those hybrid seeds that depends on inputs here and here. So if I have money, if I have time, I will put some research on that to say where aflatoxin is more, is more we see more aflatoxin here or there, which practices and so on. I need some more proof from people to see. So, yeah, uh, to come back to your question about uh, uh, 
food security. Yes, our people first. The local consumption first, local diet first. Then we go for other things. We know that we are globalization. Yes, we are traveling here and there. Our food is traveling here and there. But there are some things like if I come to the past to the airport with my passport, the national should have a specific treatment. So when it comes also to food, the national also should have a kind of specific treatment before we go to others. Amara Jeju, it was really fascinating speaking to you. And I'm very happy that you were able to make time to speak about food sovereignty and the work that the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa has been supporting. So thank you very much. Thank you, Talia. My pleasure. And thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. If you enjoyed this content, please go to the website, TheAnalysis.News, and get on the mailing list. That way you're informed every time a new episode is released. You can also donate to the show and go to our YouTube channel, TheAnalysis-News. Hit like and subscribe on all the videos and see you next time.